Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. So it's been a pretty busy week. Uh, the General Assembly, the session started, and it is a year where we're tackling redistricting. So that is the big major thing that we're going to be talking about today. Redistricting. The bills are out. The maps are out uh, and we are going to talk all about it, all the things that have happened, what it looks like if these maps do in fact become the law of the land over the next 10 years, then we will have plenty to talk about with them. So that that's what we're going to start off with. Of course, the session includes lots of other things that are not redistricting. So Jasmine's going to talk about a lot of the other things that are going on in the legislative session. And then, of course, Omicron has hit Kentucky in a big way, so there are tons and tons of COVID cases, so we're going to do a bit of a a COVID update regarding Omicron, and that is what we're going to be talking about today. So without any further ado, Jasmine, let's talk about redistricting. So of course, very, very high on the list of things to do in 2022 for the Legislative Assembly is uh, create new maps for the Kentucky Legislature, for the United States Congress in Kentucky, and for the Supreme court so the house gop got a bit of a head start because they released their draft map late last week and they held a press conference where they basically like taped the map to the wall <laughs> and said you know here is here is the map uh so did you did you hear about this press conference at all jasmine okay i heard about the press conference i didn't see that they taped it to the wall but i heard about the press conference and it was the morning after we recorded and said that we weren't going to see the maps. Yeah. And well, then we, we sort I guess we saw the map the next morning. We did. We did. Yeah, they they basically said the map was going to come out. But yes, they they just kind of taped it to the wall and that was basically what we had to do. So people were doing all kinds of crazy things where they were like trying to basically like blow like steal the image from the press conference. Um somebody like took a picture of the back of the wall and tried to like overlay it on top of like a street map because we don't really know where these districts are. It's basically just like a flat map of like the counties uh and and you know people mm-hmm. trying to like just kind of overlay what's going on over there i got myself a hold of the list of precincts that made up the different districts so you know i was able to draw the lines and kind of analyze the new districts jasmine I, you know my, my life is kind of interesting uh because people know me for different things if you're listening to the podcast you probably know me as like the guy with the Kentucky politics podcast. But some people are like, oh yeah, Robert, the guy with the Twitter. And some people are like, oh yeah, Robert, <laughs> the guy with the maps. So, you know, I have these different personalities. So if you're like a podcast only person and, and don't interact with me in any other way, I do draw a lot of maps. That is kind of a weird hobby of mine. So I did, I did get a hold of the list of precincts and I think made the first map of the Kentucky house that people could actually like kind of see where their new district was going to be. So that, that was, that was what I did late last week. So on the first day of the legislative session, the Senate introduced SB2, SB3, and SB20, which related to redistricting. And, you know, that day, late that night, the uh, the actual text of the bills were available. So, you know, we have the maps. I was able to kind of do the same thing with Congress and with the state Senate. We're going to kind of go over the differences in the maps uh, later on. So the the way that kind of the way that incumbents are kind of pitted against each other in the House, uh, there were two sets of uh, Republican incumbents and then two sets of Democratic incumbents that were kind of pitted against each other. But in the Senate, that was not the case. And uh, yeah, that that's kind of what's going on. We, we fully expect that 
most of these laws are going to be passed pretty quickly, probably by Saturday. And there's a lot of stuff in them. So let's kind of go over the differences in the map. So the, the House map that was released by the House Republicans does several things to kind of, I, I would say, disrupt Democratic incumbents and to kind of help shore up Republicans in small cities. So Jasmine, you know, in the 2020 election, that was kind of one of the hallmarks. The Trump wave kind of wiped out a lot of Democrats in small cities. So there are new Republicans in places like, you know, Henderson and places like Ashland and places like Richmond. Like these are the kind of places where Democrats kind of had been in office before, but had lost their seats. And, and uh, you know, the new maps kind of helped shore up the Republicans in those areas. You know, like nearly every state, Kentucky has a very sharp urban-rural divide. And, you know, it would be pretty tough for Republicans to take seats away from Democrats in, you know, Louisville. You could probably do a couple different things, but they kind of shied away from that. But instead of, like, taking them and making those seats a little bit more competitive, what they did was they kind of, like, disrupted several uh, Mm -hmm. Democratic incumbents in Louisville. So, you know, districts that existed are now kind of split into four or five new districts. So while not all of them, you know, there are a couple of sets of Democratic incumbents in Louisville that are pitted against each other. That is, Mary Lou Marzian and Josie Raymond were both drawn into one district, and then Mackenzie Cantrell and Lisa Wilner were drawn into the same district. Besides those four, all of the other, I think it's 15 seats in Louisville, all of the other ones, basically everybody was given their own seat, but they were mostly given entirely new voters. Like, I think Alvin Gentry's district was split into like five different districts, and I'm not totally sure where his house falls inside of his district and which spot he's going to be representing, but he has a whole bunch of new voters, if these in fact are the maps that go forward, that he's going to have to introduce himself to, that he's not used to their communities, that, you know, when you're a legislator, you kind of get to know the people that you represent, people uh, who have problems with the government, you know, the business leaders in your community or whatever, like, you know, the, the teachers, everything else, like those people know who to go to. They know who their legislator is. And now a lot of them don't. They're going to be handing off and, and kind of trading around based on, uh, you know, just kind of where they drew the maps. So that, that's kind of what I mean when I say that Democratic incumbents in cities were, were disrupted. So the VRA, the Voting Rights Act, uh, that requires there to be three majority-minority districts in Louisville. And we've talked about this several times in the past. The current way that this is drawn, and there's, there's these three big east-west districts that kind of start in the west end and kind of go all the way to the east end. And there were, you know, for the past, I think, four or six years, um, three black Louisvillians that represented those districts. Most of the time, it had been Attica Scott, um, Reginald Meeks, and, uh, you know, a mix of Daryl Owens, Charles Booker, and now Pam Stevenson. So those have been the people who represented those districts. So now the the Republicans drew the map to make their two, there's two east-west districts that go that direction. And then Democratic leader Joni Jenkins actually has been drawn into a West End district and given a VRA district. So if she wants to continue her service, it will be as a white legislator in a VRA district. So that is something else that happened as the Republicans drew the map. So that that's kind of Louisville. Um, in Lexington, Sherilyn Stevens, I think, was probably the biggest loser. Her previous district included much of South Lexington, but now District 88, which is her district, has been drawn to include basically just her neighborhood in South Lexington and much of North Fayette County and some of Georgetown. It actually stretches all the way into Scott County and goes all the way up to uh, Eastern Scott County in, in eastern Georgetown. So so a very, very different district for her, including a lot of space outside 
of Fayette County, which is not a place that she's ever represented before. So she's going to have a tough time. It's a, it's a much more Republican district. It's not a guaranteed loss for Democrats, but it's certainly a, a tougher lift than the 88th. Yeah, I have a question about that one. So yeah. if that includes more of like North Fayette County, I mean, North Lexington, I think is maybe a more Democratic area, I would think. And then I mean, Georgetown has grown a lot, and so I don't know what parts of, of Scott County that includes. And so do you think this is one that maybe we could still hold on to? Yeah, I definitely think it's possible to hold on to it. Uh, I think that there's a lot of – like it's going to be harder than the 88th as it's drawn currently. But okay. it, um, so <laughs> I have a website, which you can check out. It's, it's kypoliticaldata.com that I've, I've put together a bunch of these new districts and kind of overlaid what the different elections have shown for them. So I've got like the results of the 2019 governor's election. And, and you know, Andy Bashir actually won the 88th district as it's newly drawn. Um, by, by like, you know, more than 2000 votes. Now, if you look at the attorney general's race in the same area, you know, Daniel Cameron actually won by like 600 votes. But uh, so so it's definitely like a swingy district. Um, okay. But but, you know, it's definitely not outside of the realm of possibility for Democrats to win. Uh, you're right. The, the Georgetown area, the area in Scott County is that that was carried. Now, it's it was carried by Andy Bashir. And it was carried by Daniel Cameron. So it's a pretty swingy area. People there are willing to vote for Republicans and Democrats. Now, when I said North Lexington, it's not North Lexington. I want to be I want to like make that clear. It's not not North Lexington. It's North Fayette County. <laughs> so Okay, you said North Fayette County. I assumed that included North Lexington. Now they are merged, so they're technically the same thing. But uh, if you are familiar with Lexington, I think you can kind of get a sense of when you've exited Lexington and entered North Fayette County. Um, when you stop seeing, you know, uh, Mexican restaurants and you start seeing horse farms, um, you are you have exited North uh, Lexington okay. and you've entered North Fayette County. Uh, at least, you know, I think that that's that's you know the, the precincts are a lot less dense. These precincts are huge once you get outside. Of it, it, it's it goes basically to New Circle Road. Um, I think that's right. No, it actually goes out to no way past New Circle. It's out into. Yeah, I was to, gonna say that is North Lexington. No, it goes past. It's all the way out to sixty four. So actually, she doesn't get it, start representing it till you hit sixty four. So that's a pretty far away. Like the the Kentucky Horse Park, you mm-hmm. know, Newtown Pike out Newtown Pike. Like actually, yeah. if you get to Newtown Pike and keep going north, um, that is the direction that she's representing. So so that area. Um, so yeah, that, that or, well that she's representing in, on the new maps and she would she would be running against. Now you know th- that's a, a a swingy district like I mentioned. It's definitely not outside of the possibility for Cheryl and Stevenson to win, but it's a harder lift for her than it had been previously, and it's all new voters that she does not know. So you know it's very strange. Something other some other interesting thing happened in Lexington, and I actually had a short conversation with some of the leadership in the Democratic Party in uh, Fayette County that were wondering about the new district. So District 93, which was in eastern Kentucky, they lost enough population in eastern Kentucky they had to move one of the eastern Kentucky districts all the way to uh, to Lexington, and and so that district now. Um, is in kind of the middle of Lexington, and it, it's going to be a pretty strong Democratic seat, uh, and it has no incumbent. So nobody's running there. We're going to get a new legislator for the 93rd. Um, it All signs point to it based on previous election results uh, for it being a Democrat, but it's not somebody we know. There's also three open seats in Louisville, and that's going to be interesting as well. So we're going to have a couple of new 
legislators that we're going to have to get to know. Um, we're going to have to run in those areas. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, and another kind of like evidence that Republicans were more interested in kind of like messing with Democrats. You know, this 93rd and the three open seats in Louisville, they're Democratic seats. Democrats are more than likely going to win them. Um, but but they could have put the incumbents in those districts. They just chose not to and mm-hmm. instead pitted them against each other and, you know, wanted to just kind of mess with Democrats is kind of what it, what it seems like to me. So we talked about Louisville. We talked about Lexington. Northern Kentucky also had... Uh, some significant changes. And that's kind of the other place where Democrats are in the state house. So Rachel Roberts, who's in the 67th district, it was redrawn to include a lot more of Southern Campbell County, which is a much more conservative area. And some of the Eastern part of Campbell County is what she lost. Her district is still fairly democratic. You know, Greg Snumbo actually beat Daniel Cameron in the new 67th. So, you know, she's, I would say uh, of, uh, all of the folks in northern Kentucky and small cities, she's actually probably in the best shape of, of the rest of them. But which, but she's in a much, much more Republican district than she was previously. You know, it is a much swingier district. It's going to be harder for her to win than it was for her to win the old 67th. But um, they messed with her probably the least. Buddy Wheatley, who's in the 65th district, which is mo- which, which currently is most of Covington, his district was cut up significantly. Covington yeah. was basically cracked in two. And the district now includes a significant portion of southern Kitten County. This is basically a now a toss-up district. Um, it had been a very strong Democratic seat. Uh, Hillary Clinton actually carried this seat. And, and there's not a lot of places you could say that about in, in <laughs> Kentucky, you know, the 65th. Now, now it includes most of North Covington, does not include much of South Covington. Very strong Democratic area was removed from it, and it was given rural southern Kenton County, um, which is much more conservative. So he's in he's in pretty rough shape. He's going to have a battle on his hands with whoever runs up there in Kenton County. But just like Sherilyn Stevenson and, and just like a lot of the other kind of uh, suburban Democrats, th- this isn't a lost cause. They're going to have a chance to win. It's just going to be harder. Uh, the last place I wanted to mention that actually Democrats are representing is Patty Minter. Patty Minter is in Bowling Green, and her seat is pretty emblematic of a lot of seats in smaller cities. Instead of kind of keeping the city of Bowling Green together, which is what it is currently, it was cracked into a few districts with the incumbent, Representative Minter, given a lot more of the outlying areas. And, and those areas, of course, tend to be much more Republican. Representative Minter was given a lot more area east of I-65, so, you know, the people, once you get outside the interstate in some of these smaller cities, it becomes much more Republican. And that's basically the way her district goes. Now, you know, again, just like with the rest of the places that I've mentioned, it is not a lost cause already. It is definitely going to be harder for her to win, but it is not going to be impossible. You know, she's got the possibility of winning. Daniel Cameron did beat uh, Greg Stumbo in this district, by, but like 300 votes, you know, Heather French Henry won the 20th, which is the Bowling Green seat that that Patty Minter is is going to have. Andy Bashir won this district pretty handily. So it's not a lost cause. It's just going to be a lot harder than it was before. So the similar dynamic to what happened in Bowling Green happened in lots of other small cities in Kentucky. I think Paducah was actually split into three districts. Richmond was also split into three, and E-Town was split into three. Ashland, London, Hopkinsville, and Somerset were split in two. Uh, Owensboro had something else going on with it. I think is very similar to this, but unfortunately, my map of Owensboro is messed up, so I don't know for sure. 
So at the end of the day, the House map makes several Democrats' lives harder in the short term. Buddy Wheatley, Sherilyn Stevenson, Angie Hatton, Rachel Roberts, Patty Minter, they're going to have a rough time in 2022. It's going to be hard for them to win. They can do it, but it's going to be hard. And we're probably going to lose a few of them. I mean, that's just the reality of it. I hope we don't. I hope they all run really hard races. I hope all of their opponents aren't great and they win. You know... But they were gonna. But the thing is, in their current districts, they were gonna have hard races anyway. We are gonna lose two great legislators in Louisville. You know, two of either Mary Lou Marzi and Josie Raymond, Mackenzie Cantrell and Lisa Wilner are going away, and that sucks. They don't even get a chance um, to defend their turf unless they want to do it in a primary, and that's just really hard because they're friends. You know, these are people who've worked together in a really hard situation, um, and, and so this is kind of tough. But a note of kind of optimism about the House map, as time goes along, this map does provide an opportunity for Democrats because there are a lot more kind of like lean Republican districts right now because of how they've cracked strong Democratic districts into two or three pieces. You know, South Covington is now part of a different district. And if South Covington becomes a lot more Democratic or grows a substantial amount, you know, in six or eight years, that could be a very, very competitive seat, you know. They moved the 20th away from Bowling Green, but all those Democratic voters in Bowling Green are now part of a different district. And if Bowling Green continues growing in the way that it has, there's a big potential that the rest of those seats might become more competitive. So, you know, there are lots of ways that in six or eight years, if this map stands, the Democrats have a chance to actually gain some seats because of how they've overplayed their hands, that the Republicans have overplayed their hand. So we we will see how it goes. Um, you know, we'll be, I'll be 40 plus, so uh, Louisa will be in school. Oh, dang. Uh, <laughs> but that's kind of how it is. Uh, and, and that's kind of the way that, that politics works and, and the map drawing process kind of works out over the long term. Woof. Jasmine, the House. How do you feel about the House so far? You're ready to move on and talk about the Senate. I was really mad about it, especially when I saw, you know, what's happening to the Democrat women in Louisville. But I don't know. I think you you just made me feel a little bit better about it. It seems like it certainly could be worse. It definitely could be worse. And it definitely I mean, the ways that it could be worse this is the kind of the calculus you have to do if you are in charge of the map drawing, you know, process is that you can make stuff a lot better for you in the short term. But when you do that, you really set yourself up for problems in the long term. And, and so you kind of have to balance those things out. And you know, I think that, you know, the Republicans have definitely been deft about this. And, and it's kind of just I mean, the thing that kind of pisses me off about it is it just like the way that they messed with people. You know, they're not going to take away yeah. those seats in Louisville. You can't do that. You you can't possibly take those seats away. You could just basically leave them alone, you know, massage the edges so that the populations kind of work out the way that they're supposed to. But instead, they basically started from scratch and redid all of these districts in a way that doesn't respect any boundaries uh, or, or internal neighborhoods. Now, I did see some of the debate about these bills in the legislature talked about how, well, the Democrats didn't respect neighborhoods in the past either. That's not a great argument because, okay, what are you going to be like? Okay, Jody Richards and Greg Stumbo were mean about stuff. They're gone now. You, who are you fighting against? Who are you complaining about? People who are gone. Whatever. It's a little disappointing. One of these days, uh, everybody's going to get over it and we're going to do it the right way. We will probably be gone by then. Who knows? Uh, all right, let's talk a little bit about the Senate map. I put that together last night, Tuesday night, <laughs> so I haven't had too much time to actually process it. So, 
One thing is that Louisville now has six full Senate seats, meaning that Karen Berg's path to keeping her seat will be significantly easier. You know, she has currently all of Oldham County and a big chunk of Jefferson County going into Crescent Hill, some very, very, very Democratic areas in, in Louisville. But she, yeah, she is now, her district is now all in Jefferson County and basically just the, the Louisville section of the district that she had previously. So so that's that's the first step there, uh, the first thing I noticed about the, the Senate map. Fayette County now has only one seat exclusively within its borders. Previously, Reggie Thomas and Alice Forky Kerr had seats within Fayette County, um, but now there's only one seat, which is roughly just like the area inside of New Circle Road. That's going to be like an incredibly Democratic district. That's like a 70% Democratic district or something. And then inside of Fayette County, there are six other Senate seats that ring around the rest of Fayette County that pull in more rural territory. So there had been two seats that had been fully inside of Fayette County previously. One of them was held by Reggie Thomas and the other was held by Alice Forgy Kerr. Of course, Alice Forgy Kerr is retiring. And I think Republicans kind of noticed that that area was getting a lot more democratic and without the incumbency advantage that Alice Forgy Kerr had working for her, that she was going to, the Republicans were going to actually have some trouble holding that seat. So they would definitely have lost it in the next decade if they had left it inside of Fayette County's borders. So they made one really strong democratic seat in the middle of the county and six uh, you know, weaker Democratic seats, weaker Republican seats that ringed Fayette County to kind of dilute the Democratic vote in Fayette County. So that's kind of what happened in Lexington. Northern Kentucky, of course, does not have any Democratic senators, and it's likely there won't be any in the next term. However, Democrats do have some chances in the next decade. The 23rd district, which is Chris McDaniel's district, he served there for, I think, th- I think he's on his third term. This is still a, still continues to be a district where Andy Bashir won. Andy Bashir won the old 23rd and he won the new 23rd. However, they did carve in some of the most democratic precincts in central Covington, so like downtown Covington, where the most one of the most democratic areas in the whole state. They carved them out of the 23rd district and shifted them into the 24th, which is a lot more Republican. I don't know how, why, what they were thinking, what the point of that was, but that was something that happened up in northern Kentucky. Uh, and Morgan McGarvey asked that question, and um, I can tell you for sure I was not satisfied uh, with with that answer. So that is that is one of the things that happened in northern Kentucky. So Boone County used to have its own Senate seat and actually has grown significantly in population. So now the Boone County seat is actually smaller. It is basically just northern Boone County. Um, it is still a strong Republican seat. John Schickel is the person who served in that seat for quite a while. It's really important. There's like three House districts in Boone County two of them exclusively in Boone County, and there's like two Senate seats where the majority of the population is in Boone County. If Democrats want to make progress, organizing Boone County is going to be really important. It is a place where Democrats have had a lot of trouble organizing uh, in the past. Both Kenton and Campbell have kind of turned around our, our pretty Democratic counties currently, at least on the state level, but Boone County has been a really, really troublesome county for Democrats in the recent past. So winning in Boone County or getting closer in Boone County is something that Democrats are really going to have to figure out how to do in the next decade. So that's Northern Kentucky. In the Senate, 
map, Bowling Green, <laughs> just like they kind of messed with it on the house map, Bowling Green looks like a pinwheel. They basically like split the city across three districts. So Bowling Green is in three different districts, and those three districts have part of Bowling Green, and then this weird kind of like L-shaped district, all three of them kind of coming out of it. It's It looks like a weird propeller. But previously, Warren County was basically just its own Senate seat, but I think Republicans correctly identified the fact that, you know, they probably would have lost that either this time or next time. Democrats already had a candidate in, in, you know, Jeannie Smith, who came pretty close to winning last time, but is now carved into a district that includes, you know, Barron County, Edmondson County, Hart County, and Greene County, which is going to be really tough for any Democrat to win. So that's, that's Bowling Green. Yeah, that's basically all I wanted to talk about regarding Bowling Green. I didn't even write down notes about the the, the, the congressional map, but I'll just kind of wing it. Did you get a chance to look at the the uh, the congressional map, Jasmine? Not okay. at all. Okay. Well, the congressional map's wild. Uh, they cut the first district. So the first district, far western Kentucky, it's kind of like the area in western Kentucky that doesn't include Bowling Green. And they kind of had it hook around the bottom of the the county uh simpson county and allen county are kind of the the two southernmost um you know counties down there uh, on the way to nashville and then it kind of comes up and it goes all the way up to frankfurt so it forms this like crazy u shape around the second district all the way up into frankfurt so frankfurt and paducah are in the same congressional district oh that makes total sense (laughs) yeah um, they didn't crack the, the third district, the Louisville district, which is something that I think a lot of Democrats were very worried about. Louisville has lost a lot of East Louisville and that has moved to the second district to make the second district, you know, that's kind of the most Republican area. So this is now like a Democrat plus 20 district. Very, very strongly Democratic district. Um, but Jasmine, if you were going to move or if you're going to drive from Louisville to Lexington on 64, you would start in the third district. As soon as you crossed 265, the Gene Snyder Freeway, you would be in the second district, the district that includes places like Bowling Green, Elizabethtown, and and Owensboro. Once mm-hmm. you cross over into Shelby County, you'd be in the fourth district, <laughs> which is yep. the, the district that starts down. I mean, that's currently in the fourth district. That's the, the district that snakes along the river. That's been that way forever. But then once you crossed into Franklin County, you'd be in the first district. And then once you got into central Kentucky, um, into Woodford County, you would be back into the 6th District. So going from Louisville to Lexington now takes you through five U.S. congressional districts. Okay, so that change would take Frankfurt out of Andy Barr's congressional district. Is that Mm -hmm. why it happened, I'm guessing? So there's a couple of theories I've seen floating around. That's, you know, Franklin County being one of the most Democratic counties in the state is definitely one of them. But also, Jamie Comer, the first representative, or the first district's current representative, owns property in Franklin County, and I think actually lives there a good amount of the time. So, you know, you don't actually have to live in the district to represent it on the federal level, but it's good if you do, and uh, now he does. So good for him, I guess. Yeah, that that's one of the reasons. I don't know why they did it that way. Uh, I have no clue, but they did, and there you go. So <laughs> that's mostly what I wanted to talk about. I mean, at the end of the day, we are lucky that they didn't crack the third into a bunch of little spots, but you know that would make it so that it would be more competitive in, in 10 years, just like the other maps. But right now, it, it's a very, very Democratic seat, and it looks like that's what they wanted to do there. So 
That's the congressional map. So what happens next? All signs point to the maps being passed into law on Saturday with minimal changes. I think they announced that there's going to be like two precincts that are being moved in the House map at the request mm-hmm. of Democrats. I know Democrats asked for a lot more than that, and they got two districts or two precincts. I don't know um, where they are yet. I think Andy Bashir is likely to veto these maps. I'm not sure about that. He may sign them, but I think it's likely that he vetoes them. And, you know, I think that veto will be overridden early next week if it does happen. After that, there are certainly going to be legal challenges. I've already heard a couple of people talking about making them, making their case, wanting to get the map so that they can kind of figure out how to do that. As we've detailed above, there are a lot of funky things going on in these maps. There's a lot of ways that they're just kind of messing with people. There's a lot of ways that, you know, individual cities have been cracked into different ways. And so, like, communities of interest, small, you know, places that would really benefit from having a unified voice in one person going to Frankfurt and advocating on their behalf, that's not going to happen now. You know, there isn't one person from Paducah. You could have zero people from Paducah because all three of the people come from the outlying area. And they're represented, you know, their job is to represent Paducah. That that's not that's not great. That's not a good situation. But does that rise to the level of being illegal? Jasmine, I'm not a lawyer. I don't think you're that kind of lawyer. Um, I'm not. <laughs> so I don't know. That is a hard question. I do think that these legal challenges are coming, but that is what happens after that is hard to tell. They could issue some sort of stay to make us use the old map. They could go all the way. In some states, the the judicial system actually draws the map for the legislative branch. That's something that's happened before in other places. I don't know. I don't know what happens. I think that's unlikely. I think it's probably this is the map that we're going to get. That's just my guess, though, and I don't know what's going to happen after that. Okay, 30 minutes on redistricting. Jasmine, tell us what other things are going on in the session. Yeah, well, my segment's going to be much shorter because it's mostly been redistricting so far. But session started yesterday on Tuesday, and I guess an early observation was that there was little, not a lot of masking from Republicans. Um, I did see that they have a colored lanyard system for distancing, like you can wear a red colored lanyard if you are trying to distance as much as possible, and there's like red, yellow, and green colored lanyards that they're wearing. Bashir, before the session, requested his power to issue mask mandates back, and Stivers was asked about it yesterday and said not a chance. So that's not coming back. And then also um, on the first day of the session, we found out that Senator Reggie Thomas tested positive for COVID and had been on KET with other legislators just the day before. That's what's happening with COVID in the first day of the session. Yeah, we'll get to it. COVID is exploding with the Omicron variant. And the fact that so many Republican legislators are just bunched together without any masks on. I I mean, this is the the best chance that we've had to stop the Republicans in probably like five years if they all just infect themselves with COVID and then have to go home. So we'll see what happens there. So the first thing that happened at the beginning of the session were um, new rules limiting debate. I believe the the House rule limited debate on the floor to 10 minutes and a Senate rule would limit it to 15. And of course, Democrats are really upset about this. I mean, with with the minority, they have speeches on the floor is like the one 
thing that they can do. <laughs> you know, like they they yeah. can make a stink about something. They can make a powerful speech that might um, make its way onto the news or go a little bit viral on Twitter um, so that people can see what's happening in the legislature. But that's about the only power that they have. And but of course, they they also don't have the power to prevent the Republicans from passing a rule to limit debate. And yeah. so that's what happened. Well, the Republicans and really, I mean, this is goes. This is true of the Kentucky legislature and for a long time, they wait mm-hmm. until the very end of session to do anything. It's like 45 to 50 days in a long session of doing nothing and then 10 days of just furious activity where they're trying to pass everything. And in every session, we've talked about like the last day, are they going to be able to get all that done? And Democrats have basically like stretched out debate as long as possible on every bill to try to prevent other things from happening. Now that's going to be less of an option for them because debate is limited to 10 minutes and they can move on Mm -hmm. to the next thing. Yeah, exactly. So a couple other bills, some of these are kind of related to redistricting. So the first one is Senate Bill 20 slash House Bill 172. This is a bill that would push back the filing deadline to January 25th for one year. Um, This has already passed House Committee today and the second and third readings were waived and the Senate is expected to pass it tomorrow because the filing deadline is Friday. Um, so if they're going to change this, it has to happen before Saturday when they'd be expected to pass the bills normally. So that has to get done quickly. And I think that it will because, because of redistricting, um, people are just learning what district they live in. So I think the filing deadline is going to get pushed back to January 25th. Another redistricting bill is HB 179. This is Supreme Court redistricting. This bill is sponsored by Jason Nemus. He presented on it in committee and said that this map isn't partisan and was supported by the justices in 2012. This bill also has an emergency clause. So this redistricting would also go into effect this year as well. It would apply to the 2022 elections and it would apply to the Court of Appeals. And so each court, each Supreme Court, there are seven Supreme Court districts. Each Supreme Court district has two Court of Appeals seats. That map was released today. I was able to take a quick look at it. And the Louisville seat, District 4, stayed the same. Each other district is affected with several counties being switched around. Um, But I didn't have a chance to look at, you know, who has filed for those seats, who is sitting in those seats now, are they affected by it? Um, So I think that's something we'll have to talk about later on. But those districts haven't been touched in a long time. Um, So this is a pretty big one. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, this was one, the other one I kind of got, uh, we haven't, yeah, we haven't done Supreme court redistricting in like 20 years. I don't think, I don't think we did it last time. And the, the, actually the Supreme court of Kentucky is not all that old, right? It, it was kind of created in like the seventies or something. The seventies. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know how many times it's ever been done. And yeah, so uh, I will I will get us a Supreme Court map soon enough. Uh, not to fear, uh, just not this week. All right, I can always depend on you for the maps, Robert. 
All right. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is education. The Senate's priority, the Senate Bill 1, is sponsored by John Schickel. It's a bill that would change um, the site-based decision-making council system. So um, we've, we've talked about these types of bills before, and this one wouldn't change the makeup like prior bills have. Like sometimes they want to like remove a teacher from the SBDM council. What this one seeks to do is basically remove their powers. Instead, it would give superintendents hiring powers as opposed to principals, which that has been in prior bills, but it would also give the superintendent power over textbooks, curriculum decisions, and things like that. SBDMs would have an advisory role, but they would also be required to be aligned with the school board. And so it seems like what this bill is intending to do is just shift power to the school board, essentially, because there's been like this, this push for Republicans to show up at school board meetings and run for school boards and and run for these like local offices. And so this is a way to get rid of like this, this local control of these like SBDM councils and shift it to superintendents who who are then like controlled by the school boards. You know, it's a tough subject because, yes, I think you're right about that, first of all, that it is kind of shifting things to the school board. And Republicans have definitely the the, and conservatives more than Republicans, like conservatives have more power to kind of influence school board elections. The people who sit on school boards tend to not necessarily be professional educators and that kind of stuff. But, you know, giving the superintendent a little bit more power in some of these smaller school districts is maybe not the worst idea, especially like some of the small independent ones, because, you know, the school superintendent is basically like in the same building all the time. Or you might have like two high schools or something and and like unifying, you know, that maybe makes a little bit of sense. I don't know. I don't live in those communities. I don't really know what's going on here. What I do know is that if you apply this to Fayette County schools and Jefferson County schools, it's an entirely different situation. And giving the superintendent of JCPS schools that much power is just that's insane. That is a lot of power to give to. I mean, I trust Marty Polio. I think Marty Polio has done a great job. But, you know, Donna Harkins, who was there before, that would not have been good. You know what I mean? No. Like, that would have been bad. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, the potential to really, I mean, and, and the fact that independent schools in Louisville have a, spe- a special, you know, a special relationship with the community inside of Louisville where the school is. Um, not always. I mean, sometimes we bus kids to those schools, but a lot of times the, the people kind of come from that area, from that community. And, you know, that, making it so that those schools are have all the decisions being made for them by the superintendent who, you know, wor- works and lives out where I live is, is maybe not the best idea. So like a lot of things, it's just kind of like whistling past Louisville or like doing something really bad to Louisville and Lexington um, and, and not really caring what happens there. So that that's one of the things that makes it frustrating mm-hmm. for me. And, and some of the other education bills that have been filed, I believe that Senate Bill 1 will be taken up by the Education Committee tomorrow, along with Senate Bill 25, um, which is a bill that would give another 10 remote learning days to districts. And I believe that this bill would give 10 days to like individual schools as opposed to the whole district, like the, the bill in the special session did. So. Right. Um, 
those will be taken up by the education committee tomorrow. And then, of course, um, I think some other education bills that we're going to be talking about are we've got two, at least two, anti-critical race theory bills, House Bill 14, which is Representative Fisher's bill, and House Bill 18, Representative Locke's bill. We also have HB 51, Lynn Beckler's bill that would ban any mask requirement on any school grounds. And we also have um, Kevin Bratcher, who is a Louisville representative. He has filed a bill to require SROs by school resource officers by August. So JCPS school board got rid of school resource officers in school, LMPD school resource officers in schools. But we've learned from different sources since then that there are still officers in most of the schools, um, just in different forms. But this bill, House Bill 63, would require school resource officers by August. Um, So I'm guessing that's a bill that we'll be talking about soon as well. One last note, we've got the Senate Bill 1. It's this SBDM bill that we just talked about, but we don't have the House Bill 1 yet. So we'll see what the House's number one priority is for this year. And the last thing is that um, in about 30 minutes from when when we're recording, um, this will have already happened when you're hearing it, but Governor Bashir will give his State of the Commonwealth address tonight before a joint session of the General Assembly. That that's something else, and that will be. I don't. I think that it's going to include the budget address too. Um, a lot of things that Andy Bashir can kind of hang his hat on. A lot of economic development stuff that's happened in the past year. So so good. That that'll be probably what he's talking about, and I, I think he's got a lot to talk about. Now you mentioned Lynn Beckler. Um, one of the things I didn't talk about in redistricting, there's a lot of things I didn't talk about, but uh, there are a lot of kind of like more conservative or more like liberty oriented. Uh, I don't know how the best way to put that, like Tea Party, if you remember that, like uh, or just Trumpy people um, who who the Republicans have kind of messed with, too. So it wasn't just Democrats. Um, you know, they they drew uh, Nima Kirk McCormick out of her district. I think she's one of the people who has a, a primary in Eastern Kentucky. I think Lynn Beckler's district, something happened with his as well. So so it wasn't just Democrats they were messing with, but of course, focused a little bit more uh, on the Republicans. I think the the Adrian Southworth is probably the most upset. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's for her Senate seat. Uh, yeah. And honestly, I don't really even know how much hers. Yeah, she did because she, she's in Lawrenceburg and now she's going to have part of louisville <laughs> with her so so she's gonna end in all of shelby county so yeah definitely a very very different district um meanwhile frankfurt uh kind of goes all the way up to northern kentucky it's a whole different district so yeah she's definitely been drawn in a very very different map so so that's something else like yes and, and she's definitely fits that like liberty tea party i don't know the best way to put it trumpy people um <laughs> maybe in kentucky we should call them like bevin oriented uh representatives so All right, uh, Jasmine, that was great rundown on the rest of the things that are going on in session. So let's talk a little bit about COVID and then get out of here. So Jasmine, Omicron, woof, has come to Kentucky in a big way. Our our case numbers are way, way up higher now than any time in the past. Now, we expected that. I mean, did you expect it? I feel like we talked about it and we said it was coming and it was going to be bad. Yeah. Yeah. We expected this to happen. But what happens with these people with COVID is very unclear. 
First of all, Omicron has come for urban areas in a big way. The, the incidence rate in Louisville is almost 200 per 100,000, which is by far the highest that it's ever been. Louisville had nearly 10,200 cases last week, which is, is more than double the highest week previous to that. And, and, you know, I think most signs point to next week being even higher, you know, a, a, an even bigger increase. And and it may just, I mean, given the way that this goes, it could be an even bigger increase. We could have like 20,000 or more cases next week. So that's something to be to be looking for as a potential thing that might happen here in Louisville. Lexington is not far behind Louisville. Fayette County has an incidence rate of 135 per 100,000 people, which is their highest rate ever. Fayette County had 3,200 cases last week, which was 62% higher than their highest week ever. Not Louisville levels of increase where you're doubling um, every uh, over the week, but definitely a, a very, very, very big increase. The rural areas in the state are also getting hit really hard with all but four counties being in that red zone. But I think it's kind of logical. I mean, I don't know. I don't know this for a, a, a fact, obviously, because I don't like synthesize the tests. But I, I think that some of the rural areas are still struggling a little bit with Delta. I, I think that the you know the fact that they aren't seeing the same sort of increases that we're seeing in Louisville and Lexington does kind of point to it being a different situation and we did we do see some delta we did see some delta before omicron showing up really wrecking havoc with some of those um more rural counties so that's kind of what's going on uh the death rate though does continue to fall many of the active covid cases of covid this week are pretty pretty new they aren't to the point where covid could be deadly i mean it takes a, a several several weeks for covid to kill somebody there's more and more evidence uh, that is confirming the theory that Omicron may be less severe than other variants. If you read national news sources, this is definitely something that more and more epidemiologists, more and more people are, are identifying as actually being the case, that Omicron is milder than Delta and milder than, than regular COVID. So deaths are something that we're going to be tracking pretty closely to make sure that that is the case. Hospitalizations, though, are beginning to rise, and that metric is very concerning. One thing we've been seeing across the world is that Omicron does cause less hospitalization, but with so many cases, you know, Louisville going from, you know, less than 4,000 cases to 10,000 in one week, you know, you're going to have more people going to the hospital just, you know, just by the fact that, you know, some of these cases are going to cause hospitalizations. Our current rate of hospitalizations is an average of about 1,640 patients per day, which is about 200 fewer than our peak last winter, which was, you know, pretty bad. But but even that peak was was way less than the peak during Delta. So we're about 1,000 cases fewer than our all-time high during Delta. So we still have a ways to go for hospitalization to get to the point where it's as bad as it was during the Delta surge, and we will see if it if it gets to that level. Omicron does appear to cause less ICU utilization, though. So our ICU utilization is about 25% lower than the previous winter's peak and about half the utilization of the Delta peak. So, you know, and, and that one also is rising a lot slower than hospitalizations as a whole. So those are metrics we're going to be watching very closely. Hospitalizations and ICU usage are lagging metrics. So it's going to increase, but we'll see how much it actually increases. Our vaccination rate this week was very low. It's been the holidays. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the people who are left to get vaccinated are the last, you know, 35% of the state that hasn't gotten it yet. And those are very reticent people and getting them to actually get vaccinated over the holidays is going to be definitely a struggle. 
Um, so, you know, we are hovering at about 2,500 people per day getting the vaccine. We are through the holidays and actually have seen a slight uptick since, you know, the start of the new year. Kentucky is about at 63% vaccinated, at least with one shot. While the COVID situation is pretty worrying right now, Jasmine, I mean, are you seeing this? It seems like it's having very little impact on people's lives, like out in the world. Is that something you agree with? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's just for people. Yeah. And I mean, I'm seeing, you know, unmasked people walking around in the grocery store, uh, you know, watching basketball Uh games with just like full arenas. Like, like, what are you people doing? I don't know what's going on here. So, you know, those are people. But the government, even more liberal governments across the the country, um, states in, in, uh, you know, small or bigger cities across, you know, more liberal states, they they are, you know, you know, extremely reticent to apply any restrictions. Um, even though here in Kentucky, the state government has banned mask mandates and other capacity restrictions, you know, local governments do have some tools still at their disposal. But, you know, even, you know, some of the more progressive local governments have not applied even the limited number of strategies that they actually have to use. So that's, you know, we're going to mess around and find out what happens <laughs> with Omicron. That seems to be our, our strategy. Um, the one place where this is really troubling, and you mentioned it, is schools. Schools have 10 NTI days to use um, currently. That may change with the bill that's being uh, making its way through the legislature now. But, but JCPS and other school districts have yet to apply them. Um, and I think that, you know, there is this debate about, like, how bad it is to have kids outside of school when kids went back into school this year. I mean, I think teachers and administrators and people who run schools really noticed how bad some of these kids were having it uh, and and how much learning degradation happened when they did a whole year on the computer. Um, And so I think a lot of people really want to keep schools, kids in school as much as possible. But of course uh, you have trouble staffing schools. If you have this many people with COVID you know, the issue at many urban schools seems to be the large number of teachers who are absent because of an exposure or a positive test and, you know, the lack of subs to, to actually backfill those people. The incidence rate is very, very high. And even if people aren't going to go to the hospital as often, you know, they can't work. And that's causing a big problem in school. So something we're watching very closely. It's hard to know the right thing to do in this season. That's kind of more and more I think about it, the where, where I land is just not knowing. The vast majority of people who have serious COVID issues are unvaccinated. 90% or more of the hospitalizations are coming from unvaccinated individuals. Um, that's that's a figure I, I saw earlier this week. You know, If you have been vaccinated and boosted and you wear a mask, you're pretty well protected. You're about as well protected as you were during Delta. You know, However, based on my experiences, mask wearing is you know, way down. And um, a lot of people just aren't doing what they need to do to protect themselves. So if I, you know, how should I impact my life when we have tools at our disposal to not get infected with COVID? Um, and, you know, how much effort should I put in to protecting others who just don't seem all that interested in protecting themselves? It's a, it's a really hard place to be. It's not where I like to be, but we've been going through this for two years and, and it's just kind of where I'm at with this. What about you, Jasmine? How are you feeling? Yeah, I've kind of shut back down, I guess. I mean, not completely, but we've kind of stopped going out to eat again and and things like that just because it it seems like everyone is getting it now and it I guess it almost feels inevitable, so you know, which 
risks should I take and which should I not? <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I still have to go to work, you know? So yeah. I don't know. I think it's tough, but I, I'm definitely like chilling out on um, being in public when possible. Yeah. Right yeah. now. Yeah. You know, having a one year old kid kind of does that to you anyway. Um, so I wasn't really going anywhere in the first place. We have like kind of stopped going out to eat though. And except for, you know, when my mom invites us over the holidays, we had did go a couple times out, didn't catch COVID. So that was lucky. Yeah. Uh, and, and we did, we did like some unmasked family things over the holidays with vaccinated family members and, and things like that. And, and I'm willing to see vaccinated friends every now and then and things like that. that that's the level of yeah. risk. I think I'm willing to take <laughs> yeah yeah you know our church went back to virtual um and and you know that, that's kind of tough it was nice to be able to see those people but one thing the last thing i'll say about covid and the last thing we're going to say in the show because we do got to go is jasmine one of the things i track i track all these things one of the things i track is the first derivative of case metrics so the der- <laughs> that's a calculus term and of course it, it tracks the rate of increase and the rate of increase has been declining pretty significantly on the seven-day case average uh, over the past few days. So that kind of means to me that the increase is is slowing down. And it's kind of coming down pretty quickly. So that is something we've seen with Omicron. So the top of the, the, the peak of Omicron is actually kind of already in sight, I think. So we'll see if that continues. But it could be that this is over pretty quickly. And it isn't quite like Delta, where we had, um, you know, a stiff increase throughout much of um, July and August. And then we didn't decline um, until, you know, September uh, and through October. So so it could be that just, you know, through January and part of February, we're still increasing and we start coming back down pretty substantially um, by February. So something we'll see. Well, we're going to see over time. But uh, that's where we're at. All right. Big show. A lot of things happening. The session is happening. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk all about these things as we move along. Yeah, and you know we're doing a lot of this on the fly today. These maps are coming out as we're working at our day job, so we're doing the best we can. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're doing our best we can with what we've got. So, um, yeah, okay. Uh, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network. All right. Before we go, I do have one other thing to say, which is that if you made it to this point in the show, the very, very end, you're somebody who cares a lot about Kentucky politics. If you live in Louisville, live in Lexington, there are a few seats that are open. Brand new seats where nobody lives uh, that is a current incumbent. And if you are in one of those areas and are interested to know if you live in one of those places, you can go to kypoliticaldata.com and see if that is you. And if it is you, that's an open seat. Think about running for it. Look at it because we're going to need people to run in those places and we only have three weeks to figure it out. So there you go. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.